Well, good morning again. <clears throat> you know, we were just uh, we were looking about the little breakfast room this morning where we were staying, and it was interesting. Just you know, we I suppose we're maybe just being a wee bit kind of nosy in a way because we were saying those people look like Christians, you know, and I think those people there might be Christians, and it was just wonderful to see what Christians really look like, that Christians are different, and that salvation and forgiveness and the Savior has given us a dignity and a difference that we never ever had had before. And, you know, I looked down this morning and do you ever come to a meeting like this and do you ever wonder if we'd never met the Savior or heard of that precious blood, where we might have been this morning, and you know what we might have been doing, and thousands around us are waking up this morning with hangovers and, and sore heads and sickness, and, and here we are, sitting clothed and in our right mind, and a dignity that only Christ himself can give. So it's just so wonderful to be to be with you again this morning and uh, to hear the worship team again. And you know there was something precious about the breaking of bread this morning. There was a there was a touch with it and a sweetness with it that really was very very precious. And I trust that the Lord will uh, continue to be with us in this part of the meeting. Um, I was thinking a little bit actually about the worship team Um, and I want to speak to you this morning at least in a little bit about the best worship team that the world has ever heard mind you that one's pretty good in fact it's very good (laughs) but the one I'm going to speak to you about this morning must have been very, very, very precious. And I want to speak to you about three things. I want to speak to you about about the singing Savior, about the day the blessed Savior lift up, lifted up his voice in singing and sang in praise and praise and worship and thanksgiving, the singing Savior. And then there were times There were times when he was the silent saviour. There were times when his voice was silent and when he had no words or no answer to questions that were put to him, he was silent. And then to finish, I hope maybe, to think about a suffering saviour. A suffering saviour. I would like all our hearts, I would like my own, again, to be touched this morning to think that there was one that suffered for me and gave his life for me on Calvary's cross, the suffering, the suffering Savior. So that's kind of where my mind has been going. And I'd like to read a couple of verses just to introduce these things. The first one is in, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. And I'm going to read just one verse, verse number 30. Matthew 26 and verse number 30. And it says, And when they had sung a hymn, 
they went out into the Mount of Olives. When they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. What a worship team that was in the upper room. And then I'd like to read a verse in chapter 27 of Matthew as well. And it's uh, verse number 12. And it says about the Lord Jesus, And when he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then said Pilate unto him, Hearest thou how many things they witness against thee? And they answered him, To never a word, insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. And then our final reading is in the first uh, epistle of, Tim, uh, of Peter, <coughs> chapter 3. And we're just going to read verse number 18. <coughs> first Peter 3 and verse 18. <coughs> for Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Christ hath once suffered for sins. I think I remember saying to you on a previous occasion that it has always been a kind of a mystery to me that when you read the the 66 verses of the Bible, the Old and the New Testament, that none of them are written by a woman. They were all men. And God in His wisdom, for whatever purpose He had, He had only men that wrote those 66 verses of our, of our beloved Bible. I don't know if I said to you then, but I've been thinking about it since, and <clears throat> I've been thinking that somehow God in His wisdom kind of readdressed that balance. And when it came to hymns and to hymnology, and to songs and spiritual songs and hymns that we sing, I believe that God give, has given a wonderful, wonderful gift to women to write some of the most beautiful hymns that we sing when we come together on occasions like this. And sometimes I look through a hymn book and I read a hymn and I don't know who wrote it. And somehow when you read the words of it, there's a tenderness in it and there's a sweetness about it. And I say to myself, I'm sure that was written by a woman. And you look to the back of the hymn book and you find sure enough that it was written by And you know, you can be very proud in a spiritual sense of people like Fanny Jane Crosby, who was the queen of hymnology, really, and who wrote those tremendous hymns that we we love to to sing. And she was from New York. She was one of your own. And uh, Randy was asking this morning, have I a favorite hymn? And i tell you why that I have always been interested in hymns and in worship and in the songs that we sing because I was brought up in a church where there was no organist. And it wasn't because that there was nobody skilled in playing the organ. It was because there was no organ. <laughs> and so there was a presenter And there was someone, when someone gave out a hymn and said, we'll sing this hymn, there was a presenter who got up and gave out the hymn. And and then there was a presenter who actually started the hymn with the right tune and on the right note and in the right tone. 
And I always think of David Thompson when I think about this. The man was called Mr. Thompson. He was our presenter. And his number two when he wasn't there was my father. And my father used to, you know, practice those hymns. And he was, he could keep the note and keep the tune and I became then familiar. I, I loved to hear my daddy singing and, and, and I always had this interest then in hymns and in hymnology. And you know, hymns are very touching. And singing is very emotive and emotional and sometimes it touches our hearts. And when my father, when my father passed away, you know, they sang his favorite hymn. And I couldn't sing it. I couldn't sing it. I just listened to it when they sang it. I'll tell you why they sang it, because I think it's an introduction to what I want to say. My father was... <clears throat> He fixed washing machines. He was an engineer who fixed washing machines for a well-known company. And he would go from house to house and fix machines. And eventually he was made manager of the little company. And then on one occasion he was made manager of the year for the whole of the United Kingdom. And he got this invitation from the managing director to go over to Birmingham to receive a prize as manager of the year. And, of course, my mother, being very, very conservative, she said to him, I hope you're not going to go. They'll be singing and they'll be dancing and they'll be drinking and they'll be cursing and I hope you're not going to go. And my dad said, I think it would be bad manners if I didn't go. And she said, well, you go, I'm not going with you. Because she was invited as well. (laughs) So my dear father went on his own. And you know, she was waiting for him when he came back. (laughs) When he came back, she was waiting for him. Because she wasn't really all that pleased that he had decided to go. And she said to him, well, how did you get on? And my dad says, well, I sang. I sang. And I think I hear my mother say, you you didn't sing? You didn't sing? What did you sing? And my dad says, he said, I sang that hymn that we sometimes sing in our breaking of bread. I love thee because thou hast first loved me and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. If ever I loved thee, Lord Jesus, tis now. My mother said, what did the big boss say when you sang at him? My father said, he came to me and he said, Caleb, 
I never ever heard words like that sung before in all my life. You know, brothers and sisters, it's easy to sing among Christians. It's easy to sing in the church. But I take my heart hat off tonight again to my Father, who against, in that ungodly crew, would sing that lovely hymn to the praises of God the Father. And they sang it at his funeral. And as I say, I just listened to it. I couldn't sing. So singing has always been of interest to me and hymns have always been of interest to me. And you know, in the Bible, hymns and, and, and music, rather, music is introduced as early as Genesis chapter 4. And in Genesis chapter 4, you have the introduction of music by a man called Jubal, who was the father of all such as Handel, the harp and the organ. So as early as Genesis 4, music was a big thing even in the Bible. And then in Genesis chapter 4 as well, you have a man called Lamech. And in that chapter about music, Lamech composes a poem. Now there are two Lamechs in the Bible, don't get them mixed up. The the Lamech in chapter 5 of Genesis was the father of Noah, and he was a good man. But the Lamech of chapter 4 was of the line of Cain, and he was an evil man. And Lamech composed a poem. And many people think that because it's in that chapter of music, that that poem is actually a song, the first song in the Bible. And it was a song, the lyrics of which were justifying and glorifying violence. And Lamech boasted to his wives, he said, I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. And the lyrics of that first hymn or that that first song, that first poem was glorifying violence. And you know, brothers and sisters, in this world in which we live, the lyrics of many of the songs of the world haven't changed. They glorify violence and sex and drugs and guns. And the rappers of this world are rapping it out to a rising generation that it might be just the norm to them. And we're so thankful today that we have got a new song, even praise unto our God. He has put a new song in our mouths. And so I want to think about this worship team. In Matthew 26, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I love to think of the Savior. His voice was soon to be raised in pain and anguish and suffering on Calvary's cross. And yet in Matthew 26, the night before, he would lay down his life on Calvary's tree. He lifted up that voice in singing, and they sang a hymn in the upper room. What a worship team that was. You know, the Savior has sanctified singing. That's why I think that we can sing. He has sanctified it. It's the thing that he did and we can do it and follow in his footsteps. You know, singing, singing will never end. There's singing in heaven. 
I believe that heaven is the land of music. And I believe heaven is the land of singing. You know that when we get to heaven, there'll be no more praying. There's no praying in heaven. Nothing to pray for. (laughs) Everything is there that we need. Everything is there that we ever wanted. He is there. And there'll be no prayer. But there'll be singing. Such as you have never heard. And did we not start our meeting this morning with that hymn about uh, then in a nobler, sweeter song we'll sing thy part to save not then with lisping, stammering tongue but conquer o'er the grave. What a wonderful thing it will be to join in that worship team in heaven. You know, I wondered did they ever practice this singing? I wondered did they need a hymn book? But this I know, I believe the Savior himself was the leader of the praise. He was the randy of the worship team. (laughs) He was the one that led them in their singing as they sang these psalms from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. These psalms of ascent that the Jewish people sang when they went up to Jerusalem. And you know, he would have sung words like these that night before he died. He would have sung, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Imagine singing that when you're about to be crucified, when you're about to be nailed and spiked and spat upon and beaten. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. You know, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage your heart We're going to hear him singing some of these days. What a wonderful thing to hear him singing. Hebrews 2 says, In the midst of the congregation, will I sing praises unto thee. He's going to be the presenter in the heavenly choir. He's going to lead the praise. He's going to lead the singing. He's going to lead the everlasting song which shall never, ever end. And I want to tell you this. Every one of you will be in that choir. Some of you didn't qualify to be up here because (laughs) you might be a wee bit crooky. (laughs) But I tell you, you'll all be in that choir. What a joy it will be, brothers and sisters, to be in that to be in that worship team. You know, where we sit at home at church, where we sit at home, I sit here and Anne sits here and there's a dear, dear, dear brother. He's 92. He sits just on the other side. He's 92. He's beginning to get frail. But his voice is so strong. And you know, when they start a hymn, he starts to sing. And I'm glad he sings, but I have to tell you this. He can't hold a tune. (laughs) And so when he's here, I have to stand like this and sing because if I'm listening to him, I'll be a way off. (laughs) What a a joy it will be to be all in tune in heaven. All to catch the strain unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own precious 
blood. Oh, brothers and sisters, let's look forward. Let's anticipate that day when the Savior who sang that night in the, Mount of, in, the, in the upper room before he went out to the Mount of Olives, when we hear him singing in the heavenly courts and we'll sing and rejoice and join forever in the everlasting song. But then there were times he was silent. He was a silent Savior. You know, when he came to Pilate, it says he answered him never a word. Never a word. There was two times in the Bible that Herod, that Pilate marveled. One time was when the Savior died And you remember Joseph of Arimathea came in to beg the body of Jesus. And Pilate couldn't believe that the Savior had had died so quickly. And then in Mark chapter 15 it says, he He asked the centurion if Christ had died. And it says then, Pilate marveled. Pilate marveled. Why did he marvel? He marveled that he had died so quickly. But you see here when it says that he marveled, he marveled because that he had so much slowness to speak. And one, he, he, he marveled at the quickness to die. Here he, he marveled at the slowness to speak. And Christ had no words for him. He offered him never a word. He was silent. And then, you remember when he went to Herod? You remember that Herod... Ask him questions and he answered him nothing, the Bible says. Ask, he answered them nothing. Why did he answer him nothing? Because Herod had silenced God's voice when he cut off the head of John the Baptist and beheaded John the Baptist and Christ had no more message for him. And he answered him in never a word. He was a silent saviour. You know the solemn sign about the solemn side of that, brothers and sisters, is this that some people think they could get saved whenever they like. And some people think that they'll get saved in God's time. And some people think that they maybe get saved upon their deathbed. I'm going to tell you this you have to get saved in God's time. Because there's times when God has no nothing more to say to you if you have rejected him and you've cut off his voice, and you've turned a deaf ear. The Bible says, today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. He was silent to Herod. He had nothing more to say to him. But I think of him silent on the cross. Silent on the cross. Do you ever sing that hymn that we sing at him at home, crowned with thorns, Upon the tree, silent, silent in thine agony. Do you ever think of that? Silent in thine agony. Dying, crushed beneath the load of the wrath and curse of God. Thank God today there were seven times he broke that silence. I believe Calvary was an awful scene. It was a noisy scene. It was a rabble scene. The crowd were jeering, come down from the cross. 
The thieves were mocking and blaspheming. The soldiers were gambling. And the Savior was bleeding. And yet largely he was silent. At Calvary's tree. But seven times he broke that silence. Thought about his mother. Thought about those that nailed him to the tree. Father, forgive them. But brothers and sisters, what I love best is when he said, it is finished. It is finished. Isn't it wonderful today that that work that we couldn't do for ourselves, that work that I couldn't do for you and that you couldn't do for me and that we couldn't do for one another, he said, it is finished. And the work was finished and the price was paid. One time we had... One of our boys went to Australia and, you know, every parent here, I'm sure you like to follow your children wherever they go. Where they. So we decided we'll have to go and see him in Australia and we went away to Australia and we met some lovely Christians in Australia. And one day they took us to the Sydney Bridge. I'm sure you've all seen it on the television, the Sydney Bridge, which is lit up at New Year. And the dear brother was telling us, he said, you know, when they come to paint this bridge, they harness up a couple of painters and they move them slowly across that bridge until they have painted the whole bridge from one end to the other. And this harness and it moves across. And he said it takes three years. Three years to, for two men to paint Sydney Bridge. And then he said, you know what happens? He says, they go back and they start all over again. <laughs> It's so big. It's so huge. It's such a task. It's never finished. But the blessed Savior broke the silence that day on Calvary's cross. And he said, it is finished. I tell you today, it's enough for me. It's enough for you. It's enough for the world. It is finished, yes, indeed. Finished every jot. Sinner, this is all you need. Tell me, is it? Not. He was silent largely on the cross. And then he was silent in the tomb. Silent in the tomb. Sometimes I ponder those scenes when the Savior lay in the tomb. Imagine the Savior. Oh, that it might grip our hearts this morning. That he lay in silence in the tomb for you and me after having died and shed his blood, he laid in silence in Joseph's tomb. And then the lovely hymn that we sometimes sing, I don't know if you sing it here, it says, wrapped, wrapped in the silence of the tomb, the blessed Redeemer lay till the revolving skies had brought the third the appointed day. And then up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. Hallelujah, Christ arose. Did you ever notice that when Lazarus arose, the Savior said, Loose him and let him go. Why had he to be loosed from those grave crows? Why had those grave clothes that held Lazarus in the tomb, why had they to be taken off? 
because he would need them again. But when the blessed Savior arose, the grave clothes were left in the tomb because he would never, ever need them again. It's wonderful to think about his silence in the tomb. But I want to finish this morning on on the suffering Savior. I want to touch our hearts this morning, brothers and sisters, about one who suffered for you and me. It means so little to the world outside that he suffered. We have a friend at home who was in my church where I was brought up. He was a roofer. He fixed roofs, built roofs, repaired roofs. He told me one day he was on a roof, fixing this roof. And these roofers, they, they, need, they need big nails for the work that they do to secure tiles and to secure planks and wood and so on. And he shouted across the roof that day to his friend who was unsaved, who was on the roof. He said to him, have you any more of those six-inch nails over there? And his friend yelled back, his unsaved friend yelled back. He said, Hugh, no. They used the last, the last of them at the cross. The sufferings of Christ were just a joke. The sufferings of Christ had never, never ever touched his heart. The sufferings of Christ had never melted him in repentance. We need to ponder at times what he suffered for you and me upon that cross of shame. Do you know that in Isaiah 52 and in Isaiah 53, the writer Isaiah uses a couple of metaphors in that passage, that lovely passage that we all love. And when he comes to speak about the Savior's growth, he uses the metaphor of a tender plant. He said he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. The tenderness of Christ in his growth was lovely. The children were safe in his arms. There was a tenderness about him. It was like a tender plant. And when he comes to speak about the fact that sinners have all gone astray, he says he uses the metaphor of sheep. And he says, all we like sheep have all gone astray and we've turned everyone to our own way. We're just like silly sheep. But when he comes to the sufferings of Christ and that face that was marred on Calvary's tree, he searches for a metaphor and here's what he says. He says his visage was marred more than any man's and is far more than the sons of men. There's no metaphor that would be deep enough or vivid enough or descriptive enough to describe his sufferings on the cross. Brothers and sisters, what he suffered, what we owe him, see from his head, his hands, his feet, Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet?
or thorns compose so rich a crown. We had the privilege one time of going to, it was actually another of our boys, our boys were kind of nomads. They, one came here, one went to Australia, one went to Germany. We went to Germany to see him on one occasion. And we went out to one of the Nazi concentration camps outside the city of Munich, a place called Dachau. And you know, it was 50 years or so since that that concentration camp had been open. And I never forget there were people who were standing visibly, visibly crying, crying out loud, weeping. 50 years after the event, such was the emotion of the place. And inside there was the shoes and the glasses and the ovens and the gas chambers. And outside there was this mound, large mound, covered in grass. And there was a little sign planted in front of that mound. And from a distance as I walked to it, I thought, I thought it said, I thought it said, remember that we died here. It was the ashes and the bones and the remains of the thousands that had died in the Nazi concentration camp in Dachau, now covered by grass, but there nonetheless. And I thought it said, remember that we died here. But as I got up close to it, do you know what it did say? It said, remember how we died here. Remember how we died here. Not only how we, not only that we died, but remember how. I couldn't help but think that day of how the blessed Savior had died for me on Calvary's cross. How he allowed himself to be pierced. His hands and feet and side, all three, were pierced for me on Calvary. Oh, that we might all say today and here and now, to thee I bring my hands, my feet, an offering. Take this with you this morning, beloved sister. Take this with you this morning, beloved brother. Remember how he died here. And thankful again that it was for me, a suffering Savior. Thank you for your kind attention. Shall we just commend ourselves to the Lord in prayer? <clears throat> Father, it is with a sense of joyful anticipation that we look forward to that soon coming day when we shall hear the Savior singing in heaven in that heavenly choir. And, oh, we're humbled today to think that we shall join, Lord, with him, and we shall raise our redeemed hearts and voices 
to give him thanks for his suffering, for all that he did upon that cross at Calvary. What he endured, no tongue can tell, to save our souls from death and hell. We pray, Lord, that you will help us in the meantime until the Lord comes. We know that soon. We pray that in the meantime you will help us to live for him down here and be a witness and a testimony to him until he comes again. Receive our thanks, Lord, for this lovely church. Receive our thanks for these beloved Christians. Bless every brother and every sister. Bless every boy and every girl. Grant, Lord, that families might be united in Christ in the crowning day that's coming by and by. Receive our thanks for this happy time that we've enjoyed together and part us, Father, with your blessing as we ask these things in his holy name. Amen.